The results are in, and of course, no one is surprised that President Trump walked away with the majority of delegates at Tuesday's primary in New Hampshire. Trump is clearly on a trajectory to claim the majority of the GOP's delegate votes this summer as he becomes the party's official candidate for president of the United States. Again, here's what Nikki Haley had to say Tuesday night. I want to congratulate Donald Trump on his victory tonight. He earned it. And I want to acknowledge that. Now, you've all heard the chatter among the political class. They're falling all over themselves, saying this race is over. Well, I have news for all of them. New Hampshire is first in the nation. It is not the last in the nation. This race is far from over. There are dozens of states left to go. And the next one is my sweet state of South Carolina. Nevada is next, actually, but she says South Carolina because she's not even a part of Nevada's closed caucus. In other words, Trump has already virtually won all of Nevada's 26 delegates. But Nikki says this race is far from over because on Tuesday, she hauled in about 44% of the votes compared to Trump's 55%, another double-digit victory for him. The only problem for Haley in this margin of loss is that the vast majority of her votes are coming from moderates and unaffiliated Democrats. Take a look at the numbers. Among Trump voters, 70% of them, according to our exit polls, are registered Republicans. Donald Trump, his support, 27% of his voters are registered undeclared or independents. Uh, 3% were unregistered before today. Look at how that compares with Nikki Haley. It's a complete reversal. It's an alternate universe. Among Haley voters, 70% are registered undeclared. Only 27% are registered Republican. Yikes, that was CNN reporting that 70%, 70% of Haley's New Hampshire votes came from non-Republicans, basically. That, that means there were roughly 95,000 liberals who showed up to vote for Nikki Haley. As I explained in my previous episode, we did an entire segment on the American presidential primary system. I really recommend you go watch it. New Hampshire's primary system is open to unaffiliated voters. So if you're a registered Democrat, like a card-carrying Democrat, you cannot participate in the Republican primary there. But if you've never officially registered with a party, you're considered unaffiliated and can show up to vote in New Hampshire's primary. This was Nikki Haley's strategy coming into yesterday's or Tuesday's vote, as I quoted last week. Uh, the, the Federalists, uh, Sean Fleetwood said, some operatives are trying to get Democrat-leaning unaffiliated voters to cast their ballots for Haley in the Granite State's semi-closed primary on January 23rd. The tactic reflects a strategy Haley herself bragged about when she told reporters last month, if we get independents, if we get conservative Democrats, that's what the Republican Party should pursue. Our goal is to get as many people in the tent as we can. Now, of course, Trump thanks to all the, the legal witch hunts, and is 
an unstoppable force who, who won't be beaten because Nevada and the Virgin Islands are next, uh, are February 8th. And then, as Nikki Haley said, South Carolina follows those two on February 24th. Now, South Carolina is an open primary, meaning anyone can vote for anybody. And this is Nikki Haley's home state, but most of South Carolina's major politicians, I think all but one, have endorsed Donald Trump. Representative Nancy Mace, Representative Jeff Duncan, Joe Wilson, William Timmons, Russell Fry, Senator Tim Scott, South Carolina's Attorney General, their Treasurer, the House Speaker, the, the, the Lieutenant Governor, and South Carolina's Governor Henry McMaster, not to mention uh, outside of South Carolina, Ron DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy's endorsement. But here's the key difference in South Carolina. South Carolina is a, a winner-take-all state. That means whoever gets the most votes gets all 50 of their delegates. So statistically and logically, Trump walks away again as the victor, putting him at over 100 delegates and Haley at about 20. And then, of course, it's only a matter of, of time before Super Tuesday arrives when 874 delegates are delivered over 16 states. And towards the middle of March, not too long after that, all of the states are basically greenlit to allocate delegates not on a proportional basis, awarding the, the majority vote-getter all of their state's delegates, just like South Carolina. In other words, this race was over before it began. I'm Lake Watson, and this is We the Free. One of the best ways you can help our show other than by sharing the content is by picking up some We The Free merch at wethefreeshow.com. You can be the salt and light you were meant to be by wearing the salt and light shirt or by sipping your coffee from the salt and light mug. Or you can sport the God Bless America shirt and of course the classic We The Free crest tee. We've even got stickers and a smells like freedom candle. That's right. So check out our new merch at wethefreeshow.com. Bill Donahue, president of the Catholic League, which is an organization founded to defend the Catholic Church, wrote quite the letter of rebuke to the president of MSNBC, Miss Rashida Jones, and no, not the actress from The Office and Parks and Rec, uh, demanding a, a vigorous network response to its attacks on Christianity. The letter was brief, but Donahue called out a couple of specific instances of their bigotry. Watch. In fact, the majority of Iowa caucus goers who identified as very conservative said Trump would be fit to be president if convicted of a crime, along with a majority of voters who identify as white evangelical or born-again Christian, 57%. And that's where the real problem for the Ulcerans lies, white evangelical voters. Trump not only seems to have worked out his 2016 problem with evangelical voters, he's consolidated them around him. 55% of Iowa's caucus goers identified as white, born again, or evangelical Christian. And among them, 53% chose Donald Trump. 27% Ron DeSantis. 13% chose Nikki Haley, with 7% picking Vivek Ramaswamy. Iowa is one of the more evangelical states in the country, especially when it comes to Republican politics. That's not news. But Iowa isn't the only state where white evangelicals are overrepresented in the Republican electorate which, as we all know, does not reflect the country as a whole. 
However, they are heavily concentrated in the Republican Party. Where Trump didn't do so well last night was in the parts of Iowa that look more like the rest of the country. Nikki Haley handed him his only defeat in Johnson County, winning by a single vote. That county is home to Iowa City and the University of Iowa, you know, a diverse college town, likely full of the same type of college-educated or independent voters that Haley is banking on as she moves on to New Hampshire. So you see white evangelical Christians, which, as I should point out, are a, a different category from Catholics, but I digress. White evangelical Christians are where the problem really lies, says Joy Reid with her white woman wig and her condescending attitude. You see, we've apparently been bamboozled by the great orange devil himself. Christians have been effectively hypnotized and we're simply tumbling through the ether, oblivious to all the dictatorial faults of the evil Donald Trump. The joyless Reed said that Iowa and several other states are overrepresented by Christians. So you see, Christians don't really matter as an American voter because they don't espouse the same views as the rest of us. Darn you Christians with your differing opinions and morality. No, you see, America is better represented by college towns with their diverse array of gender-confused, anti-Semitic binge drinkers, not you bunch of dumb, uneducated Christians. Now here's the other instance for which the Catholic League has demanded an apology. Because I think that at this point, a lot of people are not paying attention. It's not necessarily the MAGAs who are in the death cult, uh, the religious Christian nationalist death cult, because obviously they're unmovable. You know, the evangelical church has failed this country. Not only have they failed America, but they've also failed Christianity. They are so far away from the gospels of Jesus. Could you imagine if the evangelical church actually followed what they claim to preach in the Bible? We wouldn't have had four years of Donald Trump. We wouldn't have had an insurrection in January 6th. We wouldn't have had the cruelty that we saw with kids in cages. We wouldn't have this idea that character doesn't seem to matter anymore. Could you imagine the kind of country we would, ha we would have had by now if evangelicals actually followed the Bible they claim to work? Worship. Instead, they're following their God, their golden orange God in Donald Trump. So Tara Setmayer from the Lincoln Project, which is a complete disgrace to that great man's name, uh, she wants everyone to know that you're a part of a death cult, you see. And she almost had me when she said that evangelicals had failed this country because I totally agree with that. But then she arrived at a completely different explanation of, of this saying that, that Christians are now basically engaged in a cult worshiping the, the golden orange god, which she laughably says uh, that it was unchristian to elect Donald Trump in 2016. Compared to crooked Hillary? Please, Miss Setmayer, and, and can we can we please stop misattributing the kids in cages to President Trump? Excuse me. That was that was your golden brown God, if we can call him that, Mr. Obama, who did that. So don't talk to me about Christians being a bad judge of character when you support the corrupt sniffer-in-chief as well. And just as an aside here, before I get too worked up, and really, this would serve the libs well to understand this incredibly simple notion. Evangelical Christians support Donald Trump because he, among all else, aligns with our beliefs the most and, at the same time, stands the greatest chance of defeating you. That's right. 
Who's the lesser evil here? Everyone knows that a great number of elections are a matter of voting against one candidate, not necessarily for a candidate. Uh, The last person that Christians wanted to see in the White House was another Clinton, so we chose Donald Trump. The last person we wanted to see in the White House and who we were convinced should never step foot in the Oval Office was Joe Biden. So we voted for Donald Trump again. Not because we thought he's some great Christian, because anybody with a brainstem knows he's not exactly a man of great morals. Let me give you an example of, of what I'm talking about. Christians, and I mean the real ones, are completely opposed to abortion because we know that it's the murder of innocent little children. So because we're opposed to that, which is so blatantly evil, we want to see abortion completely eradicated from the face of the planet. No child should ever be chopped into pieces inside his mother's womb. No child should have their brains sucked out of her skull before she's born. No child should be left to die on a steel table in the operating room. Therefore, we don't think Donald Trump goes far enough in condemning such a wretched thing. He thinks Republicans should, should stop talking about it, that it's a losing issue, that abortion should be allowed in situations of incest and rape and ectopic pregnancies when the mother's life is in danger. But listen to me, Trump has saved tens of thousands of babies' lives because if it were not for him, Roe v. Wade would not have been overturned. Hillary Clinton would have never done that. Joe Biden would have never done that. Heck, no president would have done that except for Donald Trump. And that's one of the central reasons why we, the deplorable, white, evangelical Christians, support the man. In fact, this is why the liberals view us as the so-called death cult. Here's what Joyless Reed had to say about that. After all, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds signed that state's six-week abortion ban into law at the right-wing Family Leadership Summit, a must-stop for 2024 Republican hopefuls. Liberals are experts at projection, which I think I may soon spend an entire segment discussing. Um, They're labeling us as the death cult, Christians, when they are the ones marching in the streets and threatening justices in order to keep murdering baby boys and girls before they're born. In fact, we're the ones who champion life, which is literally why we have the distinction pro-life. We Christians are the ones who champion law and order because it serves to protect civilian life. We're the ones who want to defend our southern border from invasion because failing to do so is literally a national security threat. So ma'am, you will not attribute to us what you in fact represent. You perpetuate the genuine assault on human life with your racist slander and your religious bigotry. This is why, Bill Donahue points out, if a guest or a host on NBC said that Muslims are a death cult, there would be repercussions. Bigotry against any demographic group should never be given airtime on television. I would appreciate a response to this serious issue. And so would I. And he also addressed this to Michael Cavanaugh, the president of Comcast, or the owners of MSNBC. Now, this isn't the only grievance we have with this company because their sister network, NBC, has been criticized for editing a post-game interview with the Houston Texans quarterback, C.J. Stroud. C.J. Stroud begins every single interview he does 
by thanking his Lord and his Savior, Jesus Christ. So the interviewer will ask, you know, whatever the question is, and CJ answers, but he answers after he gives glory to God. Here's how the interview with NBC went when it was live. What does this moment mean? First and foremost, I just want to give all glory and praise to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I mean, it's been amazing. Now here's the clip when NBC published the interview online. Which part, before I play it, which part do you think they took out? Watch. What does this moment mean? I mean, it's been amazing being in this city for as short as I've been, but the love that I've got. No, we, we can't allow the, the MAGA-worshipping death cult to spread their message of peace, love, life, and freedom. Quick, let's edit that part out. Similarly, ESPN tried their best to keep Stroud from talking about his Jesus. Watch. I think our viewers like me, we've never been in a moment like that. When you bust into that room after you win and you're in and everyone's losing their mind, what does a moment like that shared with the group feel like? Man, it's words can't describe. I'm just so blessed to be a part of a great group of guys. Um, and I can do nothing but just thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, man. Uh, we came out, we knew what, what we could do this season, and uh, we're proving it, man. We ain't, we listening to outside noise. We locked into what we know we can do, and we came out, we got the dub. I know you're a man of great faith, and I appreciate that as it can, meet, it can, it can give you calm in circumstances that aren't. But I'm interested in, just in the actual on-field calm that you showed on that drive where you took the lead. Scott Van Pelt says, yeah, 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 we, we know you do the Jesus thing, but we want to talk about football, CJ. But again, here's what the liberals don't understand. And, I, and I'm not sure why, uh, when it comes to real Christians, Jesus pervades every sense of our being. He is everything to us. We don't leave him at home, leather-bound on the coffee table. He's not just a piece of jewelry we wear around our necks. He is literally our Lord, our master, our maker, and our best friend. So we literally cannot help but talk about him wherever we may speak. And the reason I'm confused about uh, the liberals' stupidity in this is that their religion pervades every sense of their being. You all worship on the altar of liberalism. You worship the self. You worship your, your countless idols, and it defines everything you do and say and promote, just as C.J. Stroud and the rest of us represent Christ. So, Van Pelt tries to silence him in the just talking about football. Let's see how that goes. You're seven for seven. You had some outrageous throws. The, the calm and the comfort in that setting, where does that come from, CJ? Um, I just think it comes from just adversity, um, just persevering through uh, a lot of things that I went through. Um, and God was preparing me through all that, all that time just to get here to this moment and to lead, lead his, his kingdom and his people. So. Um, I think that's kind of where it comes from, and I have a, a great support system that takes a lot of stress off me throughout the week just to focus on ball, and, uh, and I'm just blessed, man. Uh, I think God put a lot on my life just to be in this moment, and I can do nothing but just thank Him. Oh boy, we can't get this guy to shut up about the King of the Jews. Hurry, get the script writers over at the NFL to write this guy out of the season. Now, I don't know if that's what actually happened, but if it was, I want all the liberals to hear me say something. You will never silence us. We will never be silent about our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. You can try all you want, but if God is for us, 
who can stand against. Christianity Today published a piece on Christian persecution titled, The 50 Countries Where It's Hardest to Follow Jesus in 2024. Let's talk about all of the data Jason Casper arranged for us, and then I'll give some, some conclusions. First, Jason tells us, Almost 5,000 Christians were killed for their faith last year. Almost 4,000 were abducted. Nearly 15,000 churches were attacked or closed, and more than 295,000 Christians were forcibly displaced from their homes because of their faith. From being a Christian for most of my life, I've known that persecution was prevalent in certain parts of the world. And if you were steeped in extensive teaching of the Word as I was, uh, you know that Christianity and, and some form of persecution go hand in hand. Yet still, I was, I was stunned to hear these numbers. 5,000 Christians were killed in specific relation to their Christianity. 4,000 were abducted. 15,000 Christian churches were attacked or closed, speaking to properties and probably injuries in the process. And over a quarter of a million Christians were forced to leave their homes, again, because of their identity with Christ. Jason Casper points out that sub-Saharan Africa is the epicenter of violence against Christians. This is basically every country south of mid-Sudan in Africa. He says, Overall, 365 million Christians live in nations with high levels of persecution or discrimination. That's one in seven Christians worldwide, including one in five believers in Africa, two in five in Asia, and one in 16 in Latin America. And this due to the high concentration of people living in areas of either religious hostility, governing hostility, or both of those things put together. Today we're going to look at the rankings that an organization called Open Doors has compiled since 1993. But listen to how things have changed in 30 years. When the list was first issued in 1993, only 40 countries scored sufficiently high to warrant tracking. This year, 78 countries qualified. In other words, persecution of Christianity has risen by 95% over 30 years. Now, what you're about to see or hear are five distinct lists because persecution comes in the various forms mentioned earlier. So, on this first list are the top 10 places where Christians face the most violence, which is a, d a different list from martyrdom. You can see the list on your screen, but from 10th to number 1 we have the Democratic Republic of Congo, then the Central African Republic at number 9, Bangladesh, that's the first Asian country at number 8, then just south of Myanmar, is uh, this is the, the seventh most violent location against Christianity, Myanmar. Number six is Mali in eastern Africa. Number five is Eritrea across the continent. Uh, for some reason, they censored whichever country was in fourth, but you can try to fill in the blanks as we go along. Now, here are the top three most violent places against Christianity. India is third place. Pakistan is second, which is no surprise. And Nigeria 
is the most violent country against Christianity. Violence can be defined as whatever it is that you're probably thinking. Physical violence, attacking homes, Christian schools, churches, etc. And these involve both social and governmental pressure on individuals, families, and congregations. And Open Doors even has a special category of violence against Christian, Christian women. So what about murdering Christians or what we call martyrdom? Well, here are the 10 most deadly places for a Christian to live. Take a look at this list. Next to each country, you'll see the recorded death count there. And again, this is detailing murders of Christians because of their allegiance to Christ. Starting at number 10, we have Colombia, our first Central American country with 16 martyrdoms. Then we have the Central African Republic again with 23 martyrdoms in ninth place. Eighth is Cameroon, which is right next door to Nigeria, with 24 martyrdoms. Seventh is Burkina Faso in Africa with 31 martyrdoms. Myanmar is sixth with 34. Uganda is fifth with 55. Again, fourth place is redacted with 100 martyrdoms. Indiana is third with 160 martyrdoms. Congo is second with 261. And then there is an insane jump, accounting for 82% of all martyrdoms. Nigeria killed 4,118 Christians just in the last year. We're going to process all of this in a moment, but let's move on to this next list. This shows us where the most Christian churches were either attacked or closed. Starting with number 10, we have Angola in South Africa with 100 church assaults. Niger also attacked 100 Christian churches. Burkina Faso attacked 100 churches. Sudan also assaulted 100 Christian churches. And sixth, we have Rwanda with 120 attacks. Ethiopia is fifth with 284. Nicaragua, another Central American country, is fourth on the list of most Christian church, att church attacks at 347. Now for the top three. These really start to climb here. Nigerian Christian churches were attacked 750 times. With the second most attacks are churches in India with 2,228 assaults. And finally, the country with the most attacks on Christian churches with five times more than that of India is China with 10,000 recorded attacks on Christian churches. Now reading from the study, by far the largest category total was displacement with 278,716 Christians forced to leave their homes or go into hiding for faith-related reasons more than doubling last year's total of 124,310. An additional 16,404 Christians were forced to leave their countries, 16,000, up from 14,997 last year. Myanmar and Nigeria led with about 100,000 internal displacements, followed by India with 62,119. Myanmar also led with 10,000 refugees tallied, followed by Nigeria, Iran, an unnamed nation, Bangladesh, and Congo with about 1,000. The study detailed these were accomplished by 
physical and mental abuse, including beatings and death threats, but in total doubling 2022's numbers, 278,716 Christians were displaced from their homes with Myanmar and Nigeria in Africa uh, is where most of this was happening. They also wrote, An estimated total of 21,431 Christian homes and properties were attacked in 2023, along with 5,740 shops and businesses. Now, there are more facets to persecution against Christians, which we'll look at in just a moment, but Open Doors basically summarized all persecution into one list, the top 10 countries where it's hardest to follow Jesus. Here they are starting at number 10. Afghanistan is 10th. Iran is number 9. Sudan is the 8th hardest place to be a Christian. Pakistan is 7th. Nigeria is 6th. Yemen is 5th. Eritrea is 4th. Libya is number 3. Somalia is 2nd. And finally, the hardest place to be a Christian in the entire world, according to Open Doors was North Korea. To make sense of this list, I'm going to give you the top six driving forces behind these persecutions, other than demonic influence and fallen humanity. The sixth most common reason for persecution in these top 50 most persecuted places was clan oppression. In other words, warring factions, you know, something similar to gang violence. This was the main source of persecution in two countries, Yemen and Jordan, both African. The fifth place reason for persecution was organized crime or corruption. This was the main reason for persecution in both Colombia and Mexico. Colombia ranked 34th, while Mexico was ranked 37th on that top 50 most persecuted places in the world. The fourth most common reason for persecution was religious nationalism. Now, for all of those who think evangelicals are a bunch of Christian nationalists, think again, because this was the leading cause for Christian persecution in India and Bhutan, and we're not done with religious reasons yet. The third highest leading cause for Christian persecution was communism. This was the leading cause in three of these 50 places, all of them in Asia, China at 19th, uh, Laos at 21st, and Vietnam at 35th. The second leading factor for Christian persecution in these 50 countries around the world was dictatorial paranoia. This was the leading cause in 11 countries, mostly Islamic, Syria, Uzbekistan, Bangladesh, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, North Korea, Eritrea, Myanmar, Cuba at 22nd, and Nicaragua in 30th. And finally, the most common reason for Christian persecution was Islamic oppression. This was by far the most common reason. Seven of the top 10 most persecuted places fell under this category. In fact, 30 of the 50 most persecuted places were driven by Islamic oppression. Now, there's one more thing from the piece that I wanted to point out. Other assessments of religious freedom worldwide corroborate many of Open Door's findings. For example, the latest Pew Research Center analysis of governmental and societal hostilities toward religion found that Christians 
were harassed in 155 countries in 2020, more than any other religious group. Muslims were harassed in 145 countries, followed by Jews in 94 countries. In other words, Christians are the most persecuted and oppressed group on the planet. What does that tell you? Is this how it should be? Is this how things should be? Well, not in a perfect, unfallen world, but Jesus told us it, 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 this would be the case. In John 15, 18 through 20, Jesus said to his disciples, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In other words, we will be hated, despised, and persecuted in the forms mentioned before and and written of in the New Testament, specifically because of our identity with Jesus Christ. But there's even more of a specific explanation that Jesus gave between those two verses. If you were out of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. The world, meaning everyone not of Christ, despises us because we're non-conforming. We don't go with the flow. We go against the grain of the world. And this isn't our home. Our ultimate authority and allegiance is beyond the bounds of king and country. That should tell you a great deal about Christians in the Western world, how distinct our, are our lives from those in the secular This is why in 2 Timothy 3, Paul tells Timothy and us, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now let me ask you an important question. Is persecution a bad thing? Of course, violence and and murder and theft and tyranny are horrible, awful things. But is persecution in totality a bad thing? There's an ancient Christian theologian, Tertullian. He famously said, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. This means starting with Christ, the blood spilt from persecution has only served to fortify the Christian church. It has the exact opposite effect. The persecutors wish to achieve. They want to destroy Christianity. Satan wants to destroy it. But it's like Newton's third law of motion. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So the more that Christians are tortured and murdered and imprisoned, beaten, driven from their homes, threatened or shunned, the more the church of Christ thrives. Think about it. It's no coincidence that Christianity is exploding in Africa more than any other continent because that is where Christians are facing the most resistance. Consider the apostles. Jesus was the first to shed his blood, which is the cornerstone for the church. Then his closest followers and his friends met similar ends. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. Andrew was crucified on an X shaped cross. James the Greater was beheaded by Herod Agrippa. Philip was martyred in Egypt. Nathaniel was skinned alive and then executed. Matthew was martyred in Ethiopia. 
Thomas uh, was stabbed to death. James the Less was thrown to his death. Thaddeus was martyred. And Simon the Zealot was executed as well. And we can't forget some of the opening words of Jesus' most popular sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, when he said, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. This was the opposite of expectation, as were the other Beatitudes. No one would have ever thought it a blessing to be persecuted, insulted, and libeled for being righteous, for being a follower of Christ. But Jesus says, no, it's a blessing to be persecuted for Christ. And so he says that those who will be persecuted, these shall rejoice and be glad, and, and that one day their reward in heaven will be fantastic. But did you notice who wasn't on any of those lists? The United States. But would you say that Christians face the most societal and governmental pressure here in America that we've ever faced in our country's near 250-year history? You know, it, it's not wrong to avoid persecution and suffering, if at all possible, but not at the cost of righteousness. So I'm thankful for God's providential work through our founding and our, found, and our founding fathers who created a nation based on the biblical models of liberty, you know, one of our civil liberties being religious freedom, but it's slipping away from us. And though it is a blessing to be persecuted for Christ, we must be righteous enough now, Christian enough now, to defend and preserve our liberties here at home. Now, these are our brothers and sisters in Christ that we've talked about today. They are members of the same body of Christ. We are united in spirit and, and by the Spirit. Therefore, when they are persecuted, the church, capital C, the global body of Christ, is persecuted together. So God help these brothers and sisters uh, of ours facing horrific pressure. Give them strength and use this awfulness for our good and your glory. Build your church, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that's going to do it for me. What will it be next time? We'll see. For now, go and be the salt and light you were meant to be, and we will see you next time on We The Free.